My journey as a Superman fan started with a tattered red cape blowing in the wind. That ending rocketed me forward like a red-blue blur through a decade-long origin story and poignant tales of self-discovery and now fatherhood and backward to the character's very beginnings. Now, on this podcast, we journey together across time and media to examine the stories that have defined the Man of Steel. Welcome to Digging for Kryptonite, a Superman fan journey. I am your host, Anthony Desiato. Joining me to discuss Superman number 1 through 28 by Brian Michael Bendis and Ivan Rice is the owner of Acme Comics in Greensboro, North Carolina, Lord Retail himself, Jermaine Exum. You said the owner. I'm looking over my shoulder like, hey, where's where's the owner? It's me. It's me. Um it's taken a little bit of getting used to, uh, uh, you know, when people ask over the decades, like, do you own the store? And I'm able to give a different answer now. And it, it takes me a second, even now, uh, it takes me a second to know that I can give a different answer. Yes. And for anyone who has watched the My Comic Shop Country documentary film, you are featured prominently in that. And you have also been a guest multiple times on my other podcast, My Comic Shop History. So anyone who has followed the rest of the Flat Squirrel Productions library. Uh, you're very likely very familiar with Lord Retail, but this is your first time on this show, and I'm excited to talk some Superman with you. And not just not just any Superman, but the Bendis run on Superman. People, you know, people have some feelings about this run, as I'm sure you know. I, I feel like I want to give a couple of like. Yes, I was chosen for this particular one for reasons, but. I do have, I think, some Superman credentials. Uh, I was primarily a Marvel Comics reader, but I got into DC Comics around the death of Superman, like you were supposed to. You know, I was the uh, the right age to want to know what that was, regardless of how you feel about it as far as like a gimmick. It was a good gateway to get into uh, Superman. And not long after that, uh, I think that Superman, the animated series was a thing, you know, following up Batman, the animated series, which was my real deep dive into becoming a, a Batman fan. Superman, the animated series was, that was the, the gateway through which I fully stepped through to Superman content. And I, I think you can relate to it as well, perhaps. Absolutely. The Superman, the animated series, we did a, a five episode event on it at the beginning of 2022. And as much as it certainly was a, a big part of my childhood and my Superman fandom at that time, I had not fully appreciated just how effective and well done and timeless that cartoon was until I came back to it now uh, and rewatched it. So I always had affection for it, but even more so now. So I'm, uh, it's cool to hear that that played such a large role for you. And of course, that death of Superman was that similar gateway just as it was for me. So I'm right there with you. Yeah, like like from the parasite to the toy man to the new gods, it presented these concepts so well that I at least had a handle on them and I could go explore like the, the source material. And uh, I think that without that cartoon, maybe I never really got into Superman past a certain point, but through that I was there for it. You know, I picked up some silver age material. Um, I'm a big Legion of superheroes fan, which that's kind of an, you know, that's a, a side deal to Superman content, but uh, yeah, I followed the, uh, the triangle series of Superman, which was the, you know, Superman is basically a weekly comic book. You had action comics, adventures of Superman, Superman, 
Man of Steel, each one with its own creative team, et cetera, et cetera. But it was basically a weekly story. And the way you were able to follow it, if you weren't reading it weekly, is they had the triangle numbers, which was a, uh, that was a cool thing. And uh, we'll probably never see the like again, even if we don't need to see that function again. It was a cool thing. Well, you have sufficiently proven your Superman credentials. Not that anyone called them into question, but I appreciate you <laughs> laying it out and, and telling us a bit about your, you know, your Superman fan journey. Uh, a couple of reasons why I wanted to have you on for this episode in particular. One is that I was actually at your shop the night that Action Comics 1000 released, and that featured Bendis's first Superman story. It was five pages drawn by Jim Lee, and it introduced Rogel Czar. And of course, it was part of this Action 1000 milestone anniversary celebratory issue. But I was at your shop in April 2018. I was filming. It was the first round of filming for my comic shop country. And so I was at your shop and interviewed you and, and um, other folks in and around the Acme community. And I filmed that midnight release. So I filmed you guys setting up for the release of Action 1000. I filmed your customers lining up outside and of course, one of the one of the highlights of that was in the midst of this midnight release, your pal Brian Michael Bendis, the writer whose work we're discussing on this episode, made a surprise voice cameo. Not a surprise to you. I know you had been working to set that up, but he called into the shop and you basically conducted a little interview with him in front of all of your customers about what he had planned for Superman. It was a very it was a very cool moment, and I felt the excitement of the Acme community in that moment. Yeah, it, it was a cool thing. You know, every now and then th there's things I can do. So it's just reach out into the world and maybe, you know, uh, because comics is such a tight knit community, sometimes a store, you know, can build a relationship with a creator of the product that they sell. Sometimes it's possible. And uh, in this case, I connected with Bendis a, a good long while ago. I was looking through super old emails from years ago where uh, we'd email back and forth about different stuff. I mean, years ago. Um, coincidentally, on March 21st of 2005 is when I first set up a uh, account at Bendis's Jinx World message board. And I pulled out of the ether the name Lord Retail that uh, a customer had started calling me that. So 17 years ago, to start using Brian Michael Bendis's message boards where Lord Retail kind of kind of became whatever you feel it is today. But uh, yeah, that, that's pretty cool. Anytime a creator takes time out of their day, their schedule to interact in some way, that's always appreciated. Yeah, absolutely. No, it was, uh, it was a very cool moment. So I know you do have this relationship to some extent with Bendis. Do you think he'll ever listen to this? I don't know. I will certainly send it to him. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I, I need to, uh, I need to send him an email just about, you know, turns of events around here. Like I still haven't let him know that I own the store. Haven't done that yet. Even, even my parents are like, did you talk to the Bendis guy? Did you tell him what's going on? I'm like, no, been busy. I haven't done it yet. <laughs> well, before you send this to him, let's see how it goes because my, my view on it, I'll, I'll share as, as we get more into it, but I, well, you know what? Let me just let me just get this out of the way. Let me give me give my headline, my take on this run. Now, <laughs> threat or menace? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, I you know I don't want to bury the lead, and not that not that my audience is waiting on bated breath uh, to know what I thought about this. But you know, we've the Bendis run has come up from time to time, and uh, not too long ago on the podcast, we covered the 
initial rebirth era, the Superman run by Tomasi and Gleason and the action run by Dan Jurgens. And I, I liked those runs in in concept more so than I did in execution. We talked all about that in those episodes, but I understood why people had a lot of affection for it. But, you know, I knew this Bendis run was out there waiting for me. And my only experience with it prior to this reading project was I, I read Action 1000 when it came out, and I did read the weekly six-issue Man of Steel miniseries that Bendis did that kicked off his era. I did read that as it was coming out, but for all the rest... I only read about it and heard about it. So I knew the broad strokes, the big, the major beats of of the Bendis run from reading about it, but I hadn't read it myself. And to be perfectly honest, not just what I've heard online, but what I've what I've heard from people in my circle, people I know, I did not go in with the impression that this was a beloved run. And I don't know if you feel differently. And I actually, one of the things I, I did want to ask, and I'll ask you in a second, is what what sort of feeling you got from your customers towards this run? Because again, online is one thing, but actually on the ground in person on the store is something else. So I'm, I'm curious about that. But I went into this with that in mind that this was a bit polarizing to some extent or another, but I did go in with an open mind. And my takeaway after reading, rereading Man of Steel and reading the 28 issues of the Superman title, I did I purposely did not do action, but I know you have read that and we'll touch on it, was... I genuinely felt that Bendis had a good handle on the characterization of Clark and Superman. I liked the way he depicted the character. I enjoyed the narration that took us into Clark's head, and I felt that it tapped into the core ideals of the character while also making him feel like a modern and relatable person. And that goes a long way for me. So I really, really enjoyed the characterization. The stories left me a bit colder. Uh, in almost every instance, I had some issue with either the concept and or execution of it. And, you know, we'll get into that uh, more. So in the end, I can't say I came away from this in love with this reading assignment. There was a lot of good stuff there, but I do see where a lot of the sentiment that I've heard, I see where that comes from. So that's kind of where I am at this point. So Superman is many different things to many different people. You know, there are points of, you know, because I, I have listened to to uh, episodes of your Superman podcast, and there are points of divergence. There are points where I totally get where you're coming from. Even if I don't agree with where you're coming from, I understand where you're coming from. Um, Smallville is something that I believe to you is part of, of Superman. It's not like a separate like thing. When you think of Superman, you're thinking of the way that show made you feel or what you thought about what was going on there, like the introspection that came from that TV show. That's part of your Superman, uh, uh, you know, bundle. My fan, is. my fan journey. That's very much baked into the DNA of my Superman fandom. A hundred percent. Yes. Whereas I think for me, it's Superman, the animated series serves its own place and probably the place that Smallville uh, has for you, I, I think. But uh, to have been around since 1939, Superman is, and rightfully so, many different things to different people as far as like he is this, never that. He will always do this, but not that. It's just uh, one of those things. But for me, what I'm carrying, animated series, Death of Superman to maybe... 
I'm trying to think where I stopped really being into Superman. I think Infinite Crisis is where I kind of, once that story ran its course, I think that's when I was done, barring certain instances. Jeff Johns and Gary Frank, I was there for that, obviously. And uh, Bendis, I was there for that. But for the most part, that's kind of my window and my understanding of how Superman works, like what he does. Um, I do feel, I, I do agree with you that a lot of work went into making Clark Kent and Superman a relatable person in a way that I think only, only all-star Superman touched upon in that Superman can be someone other than catching people and hitting people that he can do so much more than that. And he wants to do so much more than that. So I think that that was there. That was a intentional. This is something to showcase about this character. Um, as far as some of the storylines and beats, I think that I think there's a lot of 70s content as far as like what was going on. There was a lot of 70s uh, vibe. And I don't know 70s Superman that well. I think I know Silver Age Superman more than 1970s, early 80s Superman. I couldn't tell you really what was going on there. But uh, it was some weird stuff. <laughs> it was. Um, but yeah, th this is a... I wasn't sure how you were going to feel about it. I, I, I did feel like maybe you were hearing a lot of reaction before you actually got to the stuff. Because that's just the you know, nature of, of being online these days. People are, people form opinions about stuff before they get to the stuff. So I didn't know which way you'd go. I'll say this. In terms of how other people's feelings may or may not impact my enjoyment level of something, what I've found is that when people are gushing about something it does create the risk that I am going to be let down because I've heard such great stuff. So in that sense, I feel like when, like with the, with the Tomasi and the Jurgens runs, uh, sad to say, you know, people were pretty high on them from what I heard and I went into it and I was like, well, okay, like I'm not, I'm not where you guys are. But when people are more down on something, that actually does not make me go in wanting to dislike it or even expecting to dislike it. But I think it does, it, it sets my expectations at a certain level, but at a level that I think makes me more primed to be open to enjoying it. And look, plenty of stuff I've talked about on the show and the Snyder films are a great example where, you know, I'm, I'm not afraid, I'm not shy about, you know, voicing an opinion that's counter to maybe what a lot of others feel. So, you know, just because people don't like something, it's not like I go in and I'm like, oh, I'm going to hate this too. It's quite the opposite, if any, if anything. I feel like I go in open to it, and and if and maybe this is the lawyer in me or the Rocky fan who likes the underdog. I feel like a lot of times, like I'll go into something like that, wanting to find something to root for, because it's like you know it's get it's gotten beaten up on enough. It's like let's find something to celebrate. So you know, I, I did go in, and I feel confident in saying this. I went in there pretty open minded. Yeah, and you know, I, I have opinions on on the uh, Zack Snyder presentation of Superman. I have opinions on Kenny Braverman, that's uh, a <laughs> conduit, if you will. Yeah, buddy. Uh, yeah, Cyborg Superman. I've kind of reconciled with that, but conduit, I will never, <laughs> ever go to bat for that character. Uh, you know, I, I obviously I've been very high on conduit from my memory, and later this year, one of our last big events of 2022. We are going to be looking at the period of time from the post-death and return 
through the wedding, and that will cover the Kenny Braverman conduit storyline. So I am excited, but also a little nervous, I won't lie, to revisit those storylines that I remember very fondly and that have left me with this impression that Kenny Braverman is this brilliant, underutilized, overlooked villain, and I might feel differently upon reread. I don't know. That's the beauty the risk and reward of this podcast. Sometimes, you know, you go in expecting it to be one thing and it's better than you thought. It doesn't always happen, but so it goes. So it's hard to invent new characters for Superman. It really is. And, and, you know, that's something that was part of the Bendis run in inventing some new, new stuff. It was, Um, there was a lot of newness there. And, And when we talk about the run, like I said, we're focusing on the main Superman title, which Again, Bendis was on for 28 issues, primarily drawn by Ivan Rice with some other artists as well. But when we talk about sort of the major tentpole events, storylines, ideas of that run, what we're talking about specifically are the introduction of Rogel Czar and this notion that Krypton didn't die by natural disaster, but rather was destroyed by Rogel Czar, which ties into Jor-El's role on this intergalactic council. We also have the very controversial to this day aging up of John Kent from 11 years old to 17 years old and his joining the Legion of Superheroes and and forming the United Planets and uh, hand in hand with that back on more on a more earthbound uh, setting. We have Superman revealing his identity to the world. Uh, so, I mean, you know, those are some of the, the big what, what have I missed? I feel like I'm leaving out something big. I think those are the three like big yeah brand well maybe not John Kent being a brand changing thing but you know Krypton which recently I noticed and was reminded that the origin of Superman and how he works is told on page one of Action Comics number one you know one panel destruction of Krypton another panel rocket ship another panel kindly uh kind kindly couple yellow sun. Powers. That's one page covers all that stuff. That all-star Superman. Uh, is that what you were referring to? All-star or action? The no, original? this is action comics. Number one, original 1939. Everything's covered on the first page. Action. Number one doesn't even have the Kents. He's just brought to an orphanage by the passing motorist. Yes. <laughs> so we're refining the storyline, but yes, the basics are on one page though. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, this was one of the major problems I had with this run was the the Rogel's are of it all. And the, I ran into sort of two big hurdles. One was, and I've talked about this on the show before, we've actually talked about it uh, not too long ago, in fact, very recently. I don't like the, the any notion that Krypton was destroyed by a a single person or entity. I much prefer this natural disaster that they could have been saved from had they heeded the, the warnings of Jor-El. Um, so the idea that someone's behind it is, to me, a little bit counter to the core of the story. But as with everything, I'm open to it if there's a good reason for it and a good story and a good explanation. And maybe I missed something or there was more tie-in material in Supergirl that laid everything out and I didn't read it. I don't know, but honestly, even after going through all of this, I can't tell you for sure if, or more importantly, why Rogelzar destroyed Krypton, how he came to be besides one throwaway line that said Jor-El created him, or what exactly Jor-El's 
the source of Jorel's tension with the council was. I cannot answer those questions. And that to me is a big problem. Oh, we're going to unpack that stuff. But I think the biggest elephant in the room for someone that may want to explore, you know, the block that we're covering is actually something you covered on a previous uh, uh, Superman podcast. The big elephant in the room is why is Jor-El here? Why is actual proper Jor-El of Krypton just around? And I think that this doesn't, it it carries it over from a previous storyline. It doesn't really fully lay that out. Jor-El's just there and he had been there for a while. Um, But that's, that's the big elephant in the room. So I don't know how you feel about it. Well, I I do know how you feel about that, (laughs) but I, I think that, the context for there's a there's a context for Jor-El still being around and it's the same context for flashpoint thomas wayne batman being in play at the same time you know uh Jor-El is a uh, was the mysterious mr oz which was a mystery character that was uh, played out over the course of maybe a year or so i don't know but it was a mystery character that was doing quote unquote just doing stuff in dc universe kidnapping people just doing things and i think that it's an important thing that Thomas Wayne active, Jarrell active, and that this is something that by design, by you know, Dr. Manhattan, I guess he's the character that's like, well, what happens if this is here? And if I take this guy from here, put him there. Well, what happens? Let me look and see. I guess not in a malicious way, but in a let me see what happens sort of way. It's designed to kind of kind of break the characters almost and kind of hit them in a like super personal way that Superman is able to interact with Jor-El and it's already in an antagonistic way before he even knows who it is. Mr. Oz is no ally and just him being there throws off Superman in a, in a profound way. And for him, for his father to not be who he thought he was or who he'd even hoped to be as far as, what he thinks about things and what he feels should be happening and, and you know, how he is uh, uh, judging Kal-El's performance. Basically just the fact that he's there just throws off everything instantly in a, in a major way. So for those reasons, I think that that's allowable to get good story elements in those ways. And that's ever present throughout all these comics that Jor-El is. And then at some point was there. It's just Superman's office game. At right. every turn, I mean, do you en- do you enjoy Jor-El's role in these stories? I think that he has a presence there that no other character could serve. He has a presence there that no other character could uh, could serve. Yeah, but is that a good thing? Um, it, it's it's hard it's hard for me to you know because I read what I read, so it's hard for me to extract that because you need there's a point where you need to have John Kent off the board and on an adventure and he's not going to go with just anyone. He could have gone with the Legion. I guess I don't, I don't mean that. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to badger the witness. Um, it's <laughs> it, This is so funny to me. So for anyone again, who's not familiar with Lord retail, we have this whole bit in my comic shop country about how cryptic you can be. And one of my favorite, I can't tell you how much fun this was to edit, but there's this bit in the movie where Right before you let the customers into the midnight release, I ask you, how many copies of Action Comics 1000 did you order? And you go on for, I don't know, two minutes, which is not a small amount of time when we're talking (laughs) screen time, talking about 
why you ordered the way you did, but you never gave the number. And I even asked a follow-up at one point, you never gave the number. And whether that was conscious or just you doing your thing, I don't know exactly where, where the line is, but it was so funny to me. And so, you know, for those who know you, <laughs> I know you like to play it real, real close to the vest. And so it's not, you know, I, I, it's just for the record. It's not like I expected you to come on here and, and be like, this run sucks, you know, or, or anything like that. And I'm not trying to get you to say that or, or anything like that, but it's just funny to me because it's like, yes, I agree. Jorel serves a very unique, distinct function, but from, I mean, I'll say it for myself. I don't, I don't like that. And I talked about this and also I know Bendis inherited this, so I'm not even putting this on Bendis. Uh, but I had a big problem with this in the Oz effect. I just feel that Jorel and Lara perishing with Krypton is so core to this, you know, initial tragedy that Kal-El suffers on his journey. And, you know, there's something, you know, very bittersweet about, you know, being able to connect with the AI Jorel in the fortress, but not being able to, to be in the physical presence. And I feel like you undermine that by bringing him back. And then this note of, of strong antagonism between them, it's, you know, certainly you, you can mine it for the drama and the tension, but I feel like it takes away more than it adds. And that's the way I felt when they introduced, you know, revealed him in, in the Oz effect. And I feel this way here. And yeah, to your point, if, if we need to age up John, which raises a whole other question, uh, or if we need to get John off on an adventure, again, I think there are other ways. I think the Legion of Superheroes would have, would have been a way to do it. Now, again, I, I really want to stress this. I, I am open-minded with this, and we do get this backstory with Jor-El and this intergalactic council and everything. But again, I still can't tell you exactly what the takeaway was supposed to be from all of those dealings with this intergalactic council that decided the fate of worlds. Was it clear to you? So, well, uh, to roll it back just a little bit, um, my two-minute distraction was to buy myself time to hopefully remember what that quantity was because I could not remember <laughs> the quantity <laughs> of action comics. I was trying to buy myself time, <laughs> and you saw through it, of course. <laughs> but yeah, you know, uh, that's the honest truth. I could not remember, and I was like, I got to give him something. <laughs> <laughs> he's filming um i think that jor-el's presence is one of those fathers and sons thing that comic books really like to do and it wasn't a jonathan kent scenario it was something not good it was something not good that uh relationship with jor-el i don't think it necessarily taints the character of jor-el because I don't feel like anybody has a pure and strong, immutable vision of Jor-El. I think that that's one of those characters that you either don't think about him at all or whatever the current version is. That's probably what he was. Was he a, you know, a John Byrne, cold and sterile scientist? Was he a, uh, you know, Silver Age, pretty cool, pretty nice guy? Or was he this? Was he a... cold and clinical super scientist like science above everything but also kind of weird and and subject to emotional reaction i guess he was just like combination of things um yeah i mean i, I guess know. yeah no i'm sorry go ahead i i, I guess i because i don't 
I don't care about Droil. I don't care about anything that happens on Krypton before it explodes. I don't care. That's why I was kind of flexible with this, and I kind of understood the the fathers and sons aspect of it because you had Droil, Kalel, and John Kent. You know, son, father, grandfather. You had them interacting, and grandfather was like, "I am exercising my right to spend time with my grandson." And of course, you know, the grandson's like, yeah, let me go on this adventure, which is different from Legion of Superheroes. Who are these characters? We need you to come with us. We don't know who you are. Like that's, I feel like that'd be a little more, it'd take more explaining than grandfather saying, let's go. Do you want to go somewhere? You want to go anywhere at all? Sure. But then very quickly, that whole situation gets out of control. And I think it was important not just to, we didn't just age up John Kent, which I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about John Kent in a little bit. We didn't just age him up. He experienced legitimate trauma at the hands of the crime syndicate. Legitimate trauma where he was tortured by people that looked like his parents. Ultraman. I'm not always clear on is Ultraman Superman? Clark Kent, or is he just a guy with powers? But but ultra, uh, Superwoman, that is Lois Lane. So there were characters that looked like his parents for a extended period of time that tortured him physically and emotionally. And that was, that's a thing. He wasn't just he got older. He experienced something terrible that even through the course of storytelling, I don't think he really imparted everything to them. He, of course, told them stuff, but there's just some things that unless you were there, you, you couldn't know. And you just feel so bad for Superman and Lois that this happened and there's not a thing they could do about it. Hold that thought. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll unpack that a little bit more. We'll be right back. Acme Comics is a locally owned and operated full service comic book store in Greensboro, North Carolina for people of all ages and walks of life. Since 1983, this nine time Eisner Award nominee uses their collective knowledge and resources to connect you with the best material available. They pride themselves on their significant contemporary and vintage back-issue selection. Mail order subscriptions to new releases are available, and all offerings are available to anyone, anywhere, via mail order. Follow Acme on social media and eBay, listen to the AcmeCast on all podcast services, and visit acmecomics.com for much more. Film lovers and filmmakers, should check out this family of film festivals, Brightside Tavern in Jersey City, Hang On to Your Shorts in Asbury Park, Point Lookout on Long Island, and In the Cut in Bloomfield, New Jersey. I was fortunate enough to have my work shown at these festivals, and I found them to be very enjoyable and well-run events. Submission information for filmmakers, as well as details about the festivals generally, can be found at filmfreeway.com. Follow the festivals on social media for news and updates about events, discounts, tickets, and more. Also, be sure to listen to the Hang On To Your Shorts and Cullen On Film podcasts available via a shared universe network. Fat Moose Comics is New Jersey's best and oldest comic book store. Established in 1982 and currently under new ownership, Moose sells a wide selection of new and old comics from every publisher, action figures, graphic novels, posters, statues, and more. If you're looking for something and they don't have it, they can probably get it for you. They know a guy. Visit Fat Moose in Whippany the next time you're in the Garden State, and be sure to reach out via the Fat Moose Comics Facebook page. Flat Squirrel Productions is an affiliate of BCW Supplies, 
The next time you need to restock on comic book bags, boards, boxes, and more, be sure to use promo code FSP, that's FSP for Flat Squirrel Productions, to save 10% on your order, and it helps support the show. Thank you. And we're back. So I just want to jump back to what you were saying about Jor-El for a second. Yeah, we have had different depictions of Jor-El and other, aside from the John Byrne cold, sterile version of Krypton, which is my least favorite, I'm, I'm pretty open when it comes to other interpretations of the character. But, you know, to your point about like, well, what do we think of when we think of Jor-El? For me, it just comes back to the idea of this father, the desperate scientist, but the father who with his last act gives his son a chance at life this Hail Mary pass across the universe that the Kents catch. It's, you know, it's so beautiful to me. And so, you know, having Jor-El there, like I said, just kind of undermines it. And I also feel like we've seen, going back to my favorite, Smallville, you know, we've seen other, <laughs> other, or even, you know, very recently I covered the the Donner cut in particular of Superman 2 when I did my Donnerverse event. And, you know, the tension in that movie is, as Superman wants to to be with Lois and being told, well, you can't you can't be Superman and be with Lois and that whole business. And the very antagonistic relationship, very tension filled dynamic between Clark and Jor-El on Smallville. Like, I feel like there are ways to to still have some of that drama and tension between them. I don't need Jor-El to physically be there and be unbalanced the way he is. But I mean, look, it. It, it is the way it is. And also, I'm not trying to convince you. Like, it, to whatever extent it worked for you, that's good. I'm glad. I, I wish I wish it worked more for me. For the John Kent of it all, yeah, they put this kid through hell. And as a parent, it was, I felt Clark's frustration and rage. And that's, I think, one of the strengths of the story. I, I really felt that. Well, first, when John goes off, which the fact that, well, you know, Lois and Clark would allow that, the fact that Lois would then leave after she realizes she's kind of in over her head, those are a couple of tough pills to swallow, especially as a parent. But I think the story did as as convincing a job as you could. So I'll take it. But the fact, you know, Clark's loneliness at the very beginning of the Superman series, uh, when when Lois and John are gone, I mean, I really felt that. Literally, as we're recording this, my wife has taken our son uh, to her mother's in Jersey just for a few days, and it's like I miss I miss my little buddy. So, you know, I can, and, and I miss my wife as well, of course, but so I, I can imagine Clark's loneliness and then the rage, the frustration when John comes back and, and, you know, Superman realizes he's missed out on six years of his son's development. So, you know, that certainly packs a punch, I guess, devil's advocate. I mean, the question I would ask is, is it, is it worth it to lose out on this time watching the character, not for the, not so much even for, for Clark himself, but I'm saying for us, the reader to miss out on this character evolving organically. This is the, and I talked about this before when this came up in another episode, but I guess sort of where I land on this aging of him. And I agree with you. It's not like he just goes through a wormhole and he pops up and he's 17. Like he goes through a lot. He, he lives those six years, but I guess it's like, we know comics. It takes forever for there to be any, any real change, let alone a change that actually sticks. So the fact that it took decades and decades and decades, 80 years <laughs> before we got John Kent, and even from birth to you know age 10 and at the start of rebirth, there was time we missed. And so I just felt like even if they had just let him age in real time and it took six or seven years before he's in his late teens, it, it would have been worth it. So this this decision to have him skip over that time like I said, in the moment, it really does pack a punch, no doubt. You feel the frustration, the sadness over missing out on that time. But just like with Jorel, I guess I wonder, does it take away more than it adds? That's, that would be my question. 
Like I, I'm no, I'm no parent, but even I felt those moments. Even I felt those, you know, loss of years. And, you know, so you were just alone with these people. Like I know what crime syndicate is and that's where you were. Um, I, that was effective to me. And I, I think that that is more additive than simply going through a wormhole when you come out, you're six years older. Um, I am, I certainly didn't want 40 years of like, you know, toddler Franklin Richards with John Kent. I didn't want that. And John Kent, he had a lot of content. He had a lot of content. I was not a John Kent fan. Connor Kent is my super boy. Fair enough. So, <laughs> so I was not for the idea. Um, didn't care for it. I know a lot of people really love the Super Sons idea. I know that a lot of people love the uh, 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 Peter Tomasi run on Superman. But that wasn't really... I'm not a diehard Superman fan, so unless something is motivating me to be there at this stage, um, it just wasn't what I was looking for. So I was no John Kent fan, but I'm a fan of the concept of Superboy and the Legion of Superheroes. That means a lot to me. It doesn't mean a lot to most current readers. Why should it? Uh, DC Comics hasn't really invested in that concept in, in a very long time of a Legion of Superheroes as an idea. B that Superboy, one thousand percent has a place there. So for me, I will grind up as many you know uh, uh, young John Kent's as need be to get Superboy with the Legion of Superheroes. That is priority one for me, and and I got that. No, I hear you. No, that's that's and that's the thing. I I, I can appreciate that all of us come to this from different perspectives and if Superboy and the Legion means a lot to you and this this story got you there I, I can appreciate that so let me ask you because I touched on this before but you know being there with you in April 2018 and seeing the excitement from the customers for Action 1000 and seeing how excited they were when you were like hey everybody I got Brian Michael Bendis on the phone like they were excited over the course of Bendis's run on the books which I you know from my estimation, at least, he didn't end up staying as long as I think people probably figured he would based on no, his, his Marvel runs. So, you know, we're not talking about the the longest period of time, but over those couple of years, what sort of feedback did you get from customers? Was this something that people were continuing to add to their list? Were people dropping this, a little bit of both? Like, were people telling you they were really enjoying it? Like, what were you hearing from people about Bendis on Superman once we got past that initial excitement of that big night? Like what, what, what was the the vibe at the shop? Sometimes the nature of today's world is if something is okay, if something is pretty good, you may not always hear that feedback. Like if something's like terrible or I hate this, you're probably gonna hear that first rather than, you know, positive feedback. But the way it is measured is, through sales, through main maintenance of uh, consistent pre-order numbers. You know, that's the way to measurement, that type of thing. Uh, Superman had a few more subscribers than Action Comics, not many more. Usually, there's a difference between Action and Superman, as there's a difference between Detective and Batman. More people get Batman than Detective. That's just how it goes. Um, but I think that we're maintaining... We're maintaining total orders of around 40 to 50 copies 
through the duration of Bendis's run. Now that may not sound like a lot, but you know, if you can maintain that, that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, now, once Bendis left though, there was a, I think that here there was a contingent of people that were here for Bendis Superman, not necessarily just for Superman, but at this store, his Marvel material, he, he has a reputation where it's like, Oh, Bendis is writing this uh, restaurant menu. Okay, let me let me get that then. So when he came over to Superman, there are people that follow. You know, you follow your creators, and they followed him to that. Um, whereas now, I think things have kind of coalesced to numbers that were going on prior to prior to Rebirth and prior to Bendis Superman. I think is where we're at right now. I hear you, and you know, it's funny we haven't even talked about this, but as far as like for speaking for myself, my, my fandom, my Bendis fandom, I generally speaking would say I am a fan. If we go back to the early 2000s, I was a huge Bendis fan. When he was on Ultimate Spider-Man, Alias, Daredevil, and Powers, that period of time, for me, that was peak Bendis. As the years went on and he got more into the Avengers work and the X-Men, I I fell off a bit. And it, it wasn't even that I didn't like it. It was just... I. Look, I'm a DC guy at heart, so the fact that I read as much Marvel as I did is a testament in large part to, to him and a few other creators. But, uh, you know, as we got deeper into his his Marvel bibliography, I, I did fall off a bit. When they announced he was coming over to DC, you know, I know a lot of fans, I know there were at least mixed feelings because a lot of people were into the, the Tomasi Gleason run on Superman in particular. Um, for myself, you know, I... I guess I didn't really have strong opinions. I was curious, I suppose, more than anything else. I was very pleasantly surprised when I read Man of Steel and I saw that he had the voice of the character down. Uh, you know, I, I don't know specifically what some fans were like so worried about that Bendis would do, but I, I definitely got the sense there was some sort of concern about, you know, either what sensibilities or, or, or you know, plot developments he would introduce. But in the end, I, I think initially and throughout, we got a fairly traditional classic take on the character. I don't feel like, and I, you know, and I'm not saying like, oh, it was, you know, it was, you know, whatever. Um, you know, I, I appreciated the fact that he tapped into, like I said earlier, a lot of the core ideals while still making it feel fresh. Uh, but I guess my point is it wasn't as, you know, you know, earth shattering as maybe some fans seem to feel it might be when when this was first announced that Bendis is coming. Well, there's always the thought of, OK, you're a DC reader, you're enjoying your family time with uh, John Kent in the Superman title. And this this Marvel guy, this Marvel guy is going to come over and break all the toys is what the, the concern is, because you may not have read any Marvel content. Maybe you've heard the name, but what you do know is that someone is coming over, is is disrupting something that is stable for you. Um, so there's always that worry. But uh, I think that overall, Bendis was able to reintroduce a... He was able to reintroduce some elements that had gone from Superman content or had been gone for... 30, 40 years where an audience simply wasn't accustomed to these things that were indeed elements of Superman comics. Uh, I think that he reintroduced supporting cast. Supporting cast is just hard to manage in comic books. It just is. So most writers are not going to attempt to do it outside of, I know that Dan Slott can manage supporting cast pretty well, but otherwise 
And I don't consider, you know, Alfred is not supporting cast. He's a basically a main character. But Bendis was able to just the Daily Planet and all of those people, you know, named characters that had their own things they wanted to do, things that they felt and cared about. Um, he introduced the uh, uh, the fire chief. I can't remember what her name was. Yeah, Melody but, uh, Moore. Yeah, he introduced a character that interacted with Superman a couple of times uh, around Metropolis as a fire chief. And I guess you kind of began to wonder, like, what's that guy's deal? And of course, at the time, he couldn't reveal, you know, he was married, so you'd kind of have to deflect a little bit. And she wasn't, like, coming at him super hard, but, you know, he was trying to be polite. But at the same time, it's like, well, thank you. See you later. Yeah. Trying to ma- maintain the identity. That's something that's that's a supporting cast type of thing that had been absent even during the, uh, I guess, during the Triangle years, stuff like that could pop up. That that sort of thing could pop up. Yeah, I mean, the Triangle era, uh, I would almost argue, was the last real time that we had meaningful time with the supporting cast. I feel like in more recent years, they, they have fallen by the wayside. So, yeah, to your point, and I thought uh, one thing that I've never worked in a newsroom, but I felt like he did a really nice job of capturing the vibe of the Daily Planet newsroom. I really did like that a lot. I like that Perry and Jimmy got played. There's a great, I mean, I took a screenshot of him, a really gorgeous page from one of the Man of Steel issues with Perry, where he's just so, so weary and haggard and he's, you know, slumped over his desk. And it's like, you know, we have to show people what they don't know yet. We have to do it every day, multiple times a day. And like, you just see how much, it's you know the current news game and and his lengthy tenure at the planet how much it's it's you know worn him down so yeah stuff like that was was cool i mean other than the supporting cast what what are some of the things that you're you're kind of thinking of when you're saying that he brought back stuff that you know we hadn't seen in a long time so you've got superman really measuring his strength there are so many deliberate moments where he can't or wouldn't dream of fully unleashing. There are moments where like he he's being tossed around by somebody, but he'll use his skill to not crash through a window. Let me not do that because you know what? I know how to not do that. Sometimes it's not in his control, but this is an experienced character and he's, he's thinking in those ways. He has that in, in his mindset that perhaps Brute strength isn't the way. He's always thinking of what can I do that's different? What what technology is available to me? Is there someone I can call? Um, he has these things constantly in mind. And I think that's, that's uh, important for a multitude of reasons that he's a smart guy. And that's something that I guess in All-Star Superman, he was a genius. He was an outright genius. <laughs> right. But uh during our triangle years, he was a nice guy, right? But in this, he is very smart. He would prefer to, when dealing with an opponent, like, can we talk about this? Are you sure you want to do this? Or there are moments where he simply arrives and, you know, people are up to something shady. They're like, all right, wrap it up. He, uh, he He's here. He must know something. He must be able to use his x-ray vision. He must see something. Wrap all this up. Shut it down. Um. So that's what I mean as far as some things that maybe fell away from the character or people had not seen the character do. 
And it was, it was kind of subtle. It's not too overstated, but it's consistent throughout the material. It's consistent. No, I hear you. I mean, honestly, that's what I enjoyed most was was that characterization. And it's funny, I talked about this when we did the Rebirth episodes. It was unfortunate to me that, with some exception, we didn't get a lot of Superman's internal narration in those Tomasi and Jurgens runs. And I miss that. I like getting into Clark's head and hearing what he's thinking and hearing from him in that way. And Bendis gave us that. And I really appreciated that. And again, I felt he, you know, he captured the voice and there was in that narration and, and in the dialogue too, but uh, in the, generally speaking, the way that Bendis depicted Clark and Superman, I think it honored the experience that he has, the wisdom he's gained. Uh, but again, when we're talking about this relatability, there was a humor and a self-deprecating quality in certain respects and a self-awareness that I really, really appreciated. Uh, you know, there's one moment where Clark is at his desk and he's going to write an article about the new, his new fortress of solitude. And he stops himself and he's like, oh, this is just ego. Like, is there something else you can write about? And like, he catches himself and he's like, oh, like, that's a great moment. And when he's very upset, I think this is after John has come back older um, and he's looking for something to hit. And he's like, oh, you can't just hit an asteroid every time you're mad, but like, let me patrol. And if I happen to see something that needs to be hit and he finds Mongol like showing up at the fortress and he just clocks him, like stuff like that was great. And yeah, to your point, I love when we're in that big three-way space battle with their various alien races, like from, from uh, Tamaran and, and the various places where, uh, and the Thanagarians, and he's able to get almost all of them, I think, to stand down, like you said, with a look or a please, you know, one of the cases he's like, stop this, please. And they listen to him. Uh, so, you know, there, there was, there was a lot of really great stuff like that. When he's fighting Mongol, there's this great bit where he's talking about how he doesn't always like himself in battle and he doesn't like the things that he has to do, whether it's using violence or speaking in a certain way to try to get through to some of these adversaries. So yeah, from a character perspective, that was, I really, really dug all of that. Uh, one question I wanted to ask you again, going back to the retail side, because we've in our other projects, we've talked a lot about for you in particular, and I know this is true for a lot of other shops, but for you in particular, the value of hand selling, of being able to tell someone, hey, you really need to check this out and here's why. Or if you like this, you'll really like that. Um, and I'm curious, both when the book was coming out, but even now, because it lives on in trades, right? The, the however many volumes, you know, this, the Superman run is four volumes. You got Man of Steel, you got the action stuff. You got your set of Bendis uh, Superman collections. How do you pitch this to people? And what do you need to see or hear from someone to make you say, oh, they would really like this Bendis run on Superman? Well, occasionally a person will come in and want something Superman. And that's a, that's a whole other conversation. The, the management of the Superman brand where, there are not as many people coming in saying, show me a good Superman story. I'd say there's one for every 30 people saying, I want to see something Batman today. And that's that's not a small thing. That, that's a significant thing that a marquee character such as Superman, his standing isn't what it should be with the general public uh, uh, or with kids for that matter. But if someone asks for a Superman story, I'm probably going to show them Kingdom Come first, first and foremost. I'll show them that. But if you want something more ongoing, if it's like, all right, I already read this, already read this, All-Star Superman, already did it. Is there something else I could read? 
I will lead with Man of Steel, of course, and I will say, you know, the su- Superman's origin, Krypton explodes, he's sent sent to sent to Earth. Well, what if I told you that someone was responsible for Krypton's destruction? That wasn't entirely a natural event. What if other places knew about it? didn't do anything to stop it because they didn't like Krypton. Then what? And what if Superman comes into contact with this individual? Then what happens? And usually that's enough for someone to say, all right, let me see what this is talking about. Usually that's enough. And I think this is a opportunity to get backwards uh, and talk about that intergalactic council, which I think is, it's somewhat logical. Um, I think that it comes from, wasn't there some type of group of characters in the DC universe, like Phantom Stranger, the, yes, and this the, person and that person, the quintessence, if I if yes. memory serves, yes, yes, which there was a guardian there. So there's precedent for larger than life entities operating together. So in this case, you had a lot of your universal powers, which DC has a lot of worlds that I think aren't given their proper due, but in this one, like. <laughs> Tamaran meant nothing to me because I'm not a new teen, new teen Titans person. But with this, I'm like, okay, Tamaran, Ran, Thanagar, Oa, they're aware of one another. They've been around for a very long time. I guess they're in some type of proximity to one another. And uh, they talk to each other about things. They've set policy about things. They intervene in situations together for the mutual benefit of all, I guess. Um, so I found that to be a pretty interesting concept. But... I guess they had an they had an an enforcer like a warlord that if there's a situation and it's got to be handled shut down w- with force send this guy he'll handle it he'll send a message problem will be solved the less we know about it, the better um, the fact that they had such an entity that they could agree upon uh, employing from time to time and this entity who knew all of their secrets did not like Krypton and actually made a case for, look, this planet Krypton, the way they do things, the way they, and they're going to annex other places. They're going to just spread all of the galaxy. You, you guys got to do something. We do something about other places all the time. Got to do something about Krypton or it's going to be a serious problem. And they didn't want to do that. Couldn't be attached to any such conversation at all, but they also didn't warn anybody. They didn't say, hey, Krypton, you got a thing coming your way. This this is an, a serious issue. You guys got to solve it. They didn't do anything about it. They didn't do anything about it. And that's a pretty significant thing. You know, I like uh, I like the Godfather movies, you know, and I kind of looked at it in those terms, I guess, as far as like, okay, the families agree on this thing. Somebody's going to make a move on the families and they kind of look the other way on it. That's that's how I looked at that scenario in, in, in that terminology. That's a... Uh, Nobody really liked Krypton. I think that's an interesting concept. What if people didn't like that place? That is interesting. I don't have an issue with that, and I, nor do I begrudge this council its existence. I think it is it is an interesting take. I guess, like when you said, like, oh, there's a serious thing that's coming. We're not going to warn anyone. What are you referring to? Is it that Krypton's on the verge of a natural destruction, or this Rogel's no, always going a- to destroy it? That Rogelzar is gonna he's gonna try his best to find some way to to take out Krypton. And they knew that. So here's the thing that just doesn't track for me. So Jorel has these 
scientific findings that yes that's still there yes okay so that's still there yet the science council as always denies this and the this intergalactic council similarly says no no we've had our own people look into it there's nothing there right so is the planet on the verge of destruction from what Jorel is seeing or is it Rogelzar who is making this happen or is it both? Is Rogelzar in there causing these things for, is that, is that the idea that Rogelzar is tinkering with the, the planet's sun or core or whatever it is, and it's causing Jorel to have these findings, but the council is denying it because they know it's actually Rogelzar and they want to let this happen? Is that the idea? From, from having read this recently, it looked like Krypton was still going to have some type of natural something was going on, and Jorel really wanted the, the, uh, the circle he wanted those people to go to the council and say, look, you know, right. it's not just Jor-El. We know that at some point Krypton is going to, is going to have to be evacuated. Um, we can receive your refugees because you, you're eventually going to have to leave this place. But Rogelzar expecting to perish himself, which is why uh, I didn't like his disfigurement. I thought that looked weird. I, I liked the way he looked prior to being disfigured. Um, he made something happen very quickly, almost immediately. So, like your, they knew, yeah. So, like your interpretation that is that it was more a matter of timing. Like Krypton is going to meet its own end, but Rogelzar and the Council just can't wait. Like Rogelzar's got to get get in there and do what he needs to do and hasten the destruction of Krypton. Because I guess this is where, <laughs> not to get so worked up about this, but it just it bothered me that. I didn't like the idea of this, but it's like I was open to seeing how it would unfold and, and hopefully it would be worthwhile, even if I didn't necessarily agree with the choice. But here in terms of the execution, I really just felt like I read all those issues and I still can't really tell you exactly what the deal was. Because I guess my feeling is if Jor-El was right and there was some natural event that was about to befall Krypton the council is telling him no, which would make sense if they want Krypton gone. But then I guess I don't get the role that Rogelzar plays or has to play other than, again, a matter of timing to make it happen faster, that they hate Krypton so much that they can't wait for the planet to die on its own. And it's not a hate so much as just like, uh, Krypton, what do you want this time? What do you want? Um, and it's also, again, the fact that Rogelzar knew all their secrets. He, he knew all these various things. And I think that they couldn't be, again, they couldn't be attached to any part of this. It couldn't get out that they'd even had this type of uh, discussion at all. So Krypton was eventually going to face something. And, you know, again, no one, no one wanted to receive their refugees. They didn't want to do that. And I guess there was fear that, you know, maybe Kryptonians will take over our world the way they seem to do other places. Um, And they just sort of collectively looked the other way. It's like, oh, did Zar actually do that thing that he said he was going to do? That's crazy. Who could have anticipated this? Fair enough, but and again, I don't, I, mean, I don't mean to put you in the hot seat as if you wrote this. I mean, I, you know, but I, I guess I, it's still not clear to me what the real source of Rogel Zar's intense hatred was. And if I'm not mistaken, I, I mean, in the Superman run, we only get that one line. I think it's Adam Strange telling Superman, or has Superman figured it out himself? Something has clearly. Some information has been conveyed off panel where it is said that Jor-El created Rogelzar. Yes, yes, you get that. Um, again, it's sort of, 
it's not like a major thing the way you think it would be. Also, when the uh, grand finale battle takes place at the remains of Krypton, and uh, Kryptonians are, are you know feeling the radiation of the the right, uh, yes. Kryptonite there, and Rogozar is feeling it too. It's like you're you are Kryptonian. That makes this even worse. What is going on here? But uh, yeah, it's a lot of uh, a lot of moving parts and pieces that that were in this whole story for sure. Look, and and again, I'm not, I'm not you know if it worked for you and you liked it, did you like it? I'm not that attached to, like, I don't want there to have been some ulterior motive. I don't, I don't want the Waynes to have been set up in Crime Alley. I don't want that. But I don't mind this idea that Krypton was part of a global, a, a galactic community, which they've never really gotten into that before. That Krypton is part of a global, commu- excuse me, intergalactic community, and that maybe they were not uh, viewed favorably. And when it's, when they were in trouble, nobody was there for them. I think that it doesn't exactly change. It doesn't change too much. You still get Kal-El being sent away. You still get, uh, almost everything is still there. In my opinion, almost everything is still there as far as, the characters reacting and it gives Superman a character in Rogel czar that he can, he's like, I think I hate this guy. I think I actually, he has to really consider, do I need to dispense final justice with this individual? Because this is too much. Also the thing I didn't like the destruction of Kandor. I didn't like that. That was a, you know, the bottle city of Kandor is in Superman's care in the fortress. Rogel czar, uh, uh, I guess he's, I don't know how old he is. I've never been clear on how old was Krypton when it blew up. I never was clear on like, is there hyperspace travel? Never know. At any rate, I think he's probably pretty old. And he discovers there's a Kryptonian somewhere. He's on Earth. This guy has a whole like city of Kryptonians in his house. This is outrageous to me. I didn't like that the Kandor was was murdered off panel. That was, that was pretty harsh. That's That wasn't a small thing for me. Yes, that was, uh, that was brutal. Um, you know, so for me, obviously I feel, I do have other stronger feelings about the, the origin story and the destruction of Krypton and, and it, but it's not just, it's not just, oh, I, I want it to be a natural disaster because that's the version I'm familiar with. I do think it's more compelling. I think there's something grander and more mythic. I feel like it, it reduces it to some degree, if it's a villain who was behind it. And I do also think, and this, I, I, you know, I can't take credit for this. This was uh, one of our guests uh, uh, shared his view on this in a recent episode. Shout out to Scott. But this idea that, you know, Krypton can be this cautionary tale, like this is a planet that, uh, you know, abused its resources and, and didn't, you know, maybe take all the steps that it should have. And the planet met an untimely end. And the fact that the planet ignored the warnings of Jor-El. Now that, pla- that factor is still in place, which I can appreciate. Uh, so, you know, again, the fact that someone was behind it for me, definitely not a fan. And in terms of the Rogelzar of it all, it's like, no, I needed more of an explanation of why. I mean, I agree. They give you enough of the breadcrumbs of, he, you know, he was Kryptonian and Jor-El created him and I guess felt betrayed or something. It's, I mean, I, I guess what I keep coming up against with this is, I don't disagree when you say like it's interesting that the rest of the galaxy didn't like Krypton. 
and they were maybe aggressive in their trade practices. It's like, that's actually interesting. I like that. That's that's fine. The fact that, you know, Jorel is part of this council and they've done some shady things and there's tension there. Again, I'm not, it's not an issue. I think where I, I felt jerked around with this run was issue after issue, the promise of like the secrets will be revealed, all will be revealed. And I was waiting for something that would make me feel like, oh, this is a valuable payoff. This makes all of this worth it. I don't like the idea that some guy killed Krypton, but you know what? I get it now. And I just never, I never got there. And so that's where a lot of this just kind of fell flat for me. But on a positive note, and then, you know, circle back to whatever, you know, whatever um, else you want to talk about with Rogelzar. But I did like the way in which, as this story unfolded, the Unity Saga, it positioned Zod and Kal-El as unlikely allies. And I did like that. And I thought that was very that rang true that Zod, you know, for all of their differences, it's like Zod more than anyone <laughs> wants to preserve Krypton and bring Krypton back. So the idea that someone killed Krypton, of course he would hate that guy. That aspect and the the ultimate truce that that the El, the House of El and the House of Zod are able to achieve, I thought that was really interesting. So that aspect of it, I I, I was on board with. So did you want the secret to be revealed to you or the secret to be revealed to the characters in the story. Like when you said that you're waiting for the secret, like I think that the secret wasn't necessarily, I think we already knew what the secret was as, as readers, but I think it was the DC universe, you know, characters, you know, having all this information revealed to them. I think that's what the, you know, the secret is out now. Um, that's how I interpreted it anyway. I mean, I don't know. I felt like the flip. I felt like when Adam Strange and Clark are talking about, oh, Jor-El created Krypton, I felt like you have information that you got from somewhere that I, as the reader, don't feel like I, you know, again, unless I really miss something. I read a couple of the Supergirl issues that tied in, and I know she had her whole quest where she went out to find the truth, and I don't know, maybe there's a little bit more context there, but um, in any event, I, you know, I don't want to belabor the point, and there, there are other other aspects to, to touch on. And one thing that was interesting with this run, I know Action Comics was more earthbound and was dealing with the Leviathan of it all. I, I like I said, I, I, how do I put this? I didn't have any interest in that. From what I heard about the story, I didn't, didn't want to invest the time in, in going through all of that. Uh, so I figured we'll just focus on Superman. But, you know, Superman ended up being v- v- largely spacebound, not exclusively, but largely uh, one major exception, of course, is the truth arc. So, you know, this is one of the other big, big tent poles of this run that we haven't gotten into yet. So let's, we can talk, I and mean, we can circle back to anything else. But uh, what is your take on Clark deciding to out himself to the world? I'm undecided on how I feel about that as far as why did he do it? Um, he had just gotten this information well just that you know his father was participating in in things that were not above board such as uh was there was there kryptonian involvement in creating doomsday or am i making that up i don't remember you remember back like hutter prey was was doomsday something that kryptonians made yeah he was a kryptonian experiment okay and i don't know if that still is in play i have no idea but you know uh, that his father participated in various things that were not above board. And I wonder if had he not interacted with Drell, lost Drell in the means that he did, 
would he have made such a drastic choice? I don't know if he would have. I think that's part of those turns of events played a role in his deciding to do this thing. Um, I'm not sure. There is a logic in it. There's specifically an issue where Dr. Fate checks to see, is this some sort of magical manipulation that went on? Let's run you through some tests to make sure that's not what this was. And it wasn't, but just to be thorough, they covered that aspect of it, but I don't know. The secret identity is something that is becoming rarer and rarer in comic books. As far as marquee characters, it's what Spider-Man and Batman for marquee, like mainstream characters. That's about it. As far as I can recall, you know, Nightwing aside, Daredevil variable, but I think as far as marquee characters, those are the last two. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I, because obviously I thought about all of this beforehand, but as we're talking about it, I guess this theme is emerging for me when we talk about virtually all of these decisions that that were made and played out in this run. Where I, again, I know I keep saying it, but this idea of losing more than than we get, and I feel like with Clark outing himself, you get some interesting story. You get those moments, the mo- the the one page, the silent page of Clark going into Perry's office, closing the door ripping open the shirt, Perry going over and giving him a hug. You know, that's a beautiful moment. Jimmy and, and Clark have, have a, you know, a, a similarly, or it's a d- different tone, right? It's more amusing because Lois had already uh, told Jimmy. So, you know, that was amusing. The Batman uh, Wonder Woman reaction, just the two of them talking about this. That was, that was the thing. Yeah. So, you know, you get the, the initial benefit of that. And I guess it, you know, to the extent that they explored this notion of Clark at minus glasses, right? Everyone knows his identity continuing to work at the Daily Planet is is interesting, I guess, to an extent. It, it's, it feels wildly untenable and unrealistic, but okay, it, it's different. I'll give them that. Uh, and then this might be where, as you know, Superman fans with different levels of, 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 of passion for the character and certain aspects of the character. I think this is where, like for me, the secret identity definitely feels like an indelible part of the character. And I like what the identity allows him to do. And I feel like you take that away, you can still have him at the planet working as Clark, the reporter who everyone knows is Superman. But in the way that he's experiencing the world and the world is receiving him, it's that dyna- that old dynamic is completely gone. Now, on the flip side, so much of this run was space-bound. And in the current comics, and actually, uh, just to tee up our next episode, in the next episode, I'm going to be taking a look at Philip Kennedy Johnson's War World Saga in action comics. But that's an arc where he's off-planet. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's like, I can't believe they outed Clark. But I, I don't know. I mean, we're dealing with a lot of these stories where it doesn't matter. It's like he's not he's not even on Earth you know, for a lot of this. So I, I, I don't know. In the end, I do think that the story was well told. I liked the idea that this was a decision Clark made as opposed to being outed a la the new 52 storyline. Yeah, um, yeah. So this was at least a different spin on it. It was a choice he made. And I liked the moments that it allowed to have happen. And this is comic. So it's like, you kind of figure at some point they'll put the genie back in the bottle. Although to your point, they might not given this current trend, which is, its own conversation, but uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I, again, I just to me, it's like, oh, that's a shame to lose that. I don't. I did get the, you know listening to interviews and reading various articles. 
I did get the feeling that maybe Bendis would have been on those titles a lot longer. Now, if that was the case and you're going to make a move like that, then you do have time to really explore it and, and unpack it. You know, if you are, my name is Clark Kent. I'm Superman. This is the building that I work in. I'll be there on Monday morning. Like somebody's going to test that. Somebody can't stop themselves from testing that, but we never really got to, to fully expand upon those things. There's a couple of things. Um, the, the magical opponent, uh, Xanadoth, we got to see more of that in justice league. Mm. That's uh that's what the justice league was dealing with on Bendis's last couple issues there. So that was expanded upon there. Um, and there's a few other little things that got picked up on in, in justice league, but that was kind of a big thing that I felt like, okay, like, wow, we're going to be dealing with this for years to come. And we kind of weren't because as you said, uh, the other Superman titles didn't really run with that ball. They didn't, uh, they didn't carry that Jor-El in, into their uh, storylines, so, so to speak. Um, brief aside, not a fan of War World. I've never liked that idea. It, it bugs me that it, it continues to exist in the DC universe. You know, uh, uh, and I'm not saying that just because of Coast City <laughs> and what happened there, but just the concept, the concept of Mongol. I've never outside of uh, what's that Alan Moore annual? Oh, for the man who has everything. Outside of that one, where Mongol was able to briefly defeat Superman, thoroughly defeat Superman. Outside of that. He really does seem like uh, just out of place. It's just he's just not not a worthy opponent, in my opinion. And that even got into it a, a little bit, uh, where Mongol receives word that Superman has revealed. You know that I'm just a I was a regular person living and working among you the whole time. And for a brief second, it appeared that Mongol was like, well, so he was he wasn't doing it for this reason or this reason. Like I do, like, well, maybe I could. And as soon as he has that realization, he's you know instantly killed by his son, because I guess there's been 1700 Mongols over however period of time, but it seemed like he had a moment of realization that would have been nice to explore, but that's not Mongol. That's not the character. He doesn't get to have that. So you had a even worse version of Mongol that was uh, in play. Yeah, so. I so respect. I, I you know I do like the character of Mongol. I feel like he's one of the 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 rare villains who can engage on a physical and intellectual level. Though obviously that's the physicality that's that's the primary focus. But I, I like I do like Mongol, and I mean a lot of this stems back to the reign of the Superman, and then more recently going back and and uh, really delving into the Exile storyline from the late 80s early 90s so there's you know there's some good mongol stuff um what's interesting is you know we got mongol but otherwise you know bendis really added a lot of new or attempted to add a lot of new villains like rogel czar and i don't know if i'm pronouncing this right sinmar is that what the in the final storyline yes that's a subject that came up in justice league later that uh it was almost a different take on krypton i guess it was almost a different I, I guess that that race of beings, they observed Superman and how he functioned on Earth, and they were taken aback basically, and they created their own Superman. Like we'll just we'll just make one. We'll make a Superman. We'll get a volunteer. We'll generate a Superman that will 
fulfill our wishes and whims. And uh, it's almost like a negative reversal on on the whole idea, you know, behind Superman. Um, but yeah, that came up later in Justice League where that character returned and Superman, he knew what that was. The Justice League didn't really know what, was cool, what the threat level was, but they figured it out pretty fast. Um, I'm looking over my notes to see if there's anything that, uh, that I didn't really cover. Yeah, what else? What else have we not talked about? There's one other big thing that I want to ask you about, but what else? What else have we not talked about yet that that you wanted to? That's on your notes. Um, let's see, let's see. Um, Earth getting drawn into the Phantom Zone. That was a cool moment that I don't feel like we've seen it before, and that seemed like a very Silver Age thing to do. Like, oh no, the Earth itself has fallen into the Phantom Zone where all the bad guys are, but it was also handled in such a way that. Okay, we're going to be running out of air very soon because that's not in the Phantom Zone. There's various problems. How do we get out of this? Where Superman was having to think quickly about some, you know, possibilities and ideas, but also do physical combat. Uh, we got to see Nuclear Man briefly. Did you appreciate that? Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Yes, I did appreciate that. That was a nice touch. Um, how much Christopher Reeve do you feel visually and in in uh, sentiment was in this Superman run? I feel like there were really some moments that were, as far as like demeanor, you know, you said that there were moments of like a little sense of humor. Visually, I think there was a lot of uh, there's a lot of that Superman era of of uh, presentation in this content. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, it's funny. I don't know that I. I don't disagree, but I don't know that that was necessarily smacking me in the face either as I was reading it. And, and maybe in part because this is, you know, this is a Superman in a, in, in a context and having dynamics that we, you know, that the movie didn't take the Christopher Reeve version of the character. So he's a husband and he's a father. And, uh, so I don't know. I think that colored it a little differently for me, but, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I can certainly see what you're saying for sure. And also, um, Back to Jor-El briefly. This is also a Jor-El that observed at least all of New 52 DC Comics unfolding, which wasn't necessarily our characters and our concepts at their best. So that also contributed to his just being thoroughly dismayed, confused, and not necessarily an ally. Not someone you could trust because you just didn't know. He, he had seen a lot of stuff. And didn't necessarily impart that to, you know, Superman and Lois, that that was the case. He'd seen a lot of stuff that really twisted and, and deranged him also. So it wasn't right before Krypton explodes, we have Jor-El here. Like, he'd been around just watching stuff until he started taking action. Yeah, no, that's that's fair. So, yeah, I mean, and that's true. It's not like it's necessarily undermining the, the, the Jor-El who was on Krypton at the moment of its destruction, but you know, rather what, what happened after, but kind of on that note, that was the other thing I wanted to bring up Jarrell's final fate. So he is sentenced to return to the moment of, of his death with, without a moment for a farewell with, with his son. Yeah. That was a real moment where, uh, you know, Jarrell had participated in some things. He had done some things, uh, uh, while he was in service of finding John Kent, because there comes a point where even he doesn't know where he is. He had equally done some, shady dealings he'd done a lot of things and the recently formed 
uh, United Planets, which is a Legion of Superheroes con- concept, which was that was a big moment for me. We'd never seen the origins of the United Planets. It was just always there. So we got to see the circumstances through which these, these uh, disparate worlds came into agreement. And one of the first things that they did uh, together is try, sentence, and execute Jor-El before Superman even knew what was happening. So he did not get to say a word to Jor-El. And where he was sent to, where he was punished, is he was sent back to, what, moments after the rocket ship had, had left, where it was just Jor-El and Lara. This uh, disfigured older Jor-El was able to say, he does it, he brings them all together. Then Krypton's gone. It was a powerful moment. I really enjoyed a couple of decades earlier when Mark Wade's birthright ended with a very similar moment of Superman and, and the present being able to reach Jor-El and Lara in the past and deliver this message that I made it. So I, I, I like the idea of it. I liked it. I liked it better the first time, I, I guess. Uh, at this point, I was so kind of over this version of Jor-El that, again, the ending didn't really, it didn't mean much to me, to be perfectly honest. Now, other people feel differently. I had actually a shout out to listener uh, Tim Tim Bruns. Tim, when we did our discussion of the Action Comics uh, Oz Effect storyline, uh, you know, Tim sent me this l- lovely uh, essay defense of of Jor-El as Mr. Oz and the importance of, you know, being open to, you know, different interpretations and things like that. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, all of his points were well taken. And I, you know, for him or anyone else who this all worked for, I guess the one. I guess the one thing I would clarify is it's not that I object. Wait, let me take that again. I I do feel strongly about the origin story, about certain aspects of the origin story. I cannot deny that, but I am open to divergences from that if I feel that they're executed well. And I, between the Oz effect and here, I just did not feel that way. I wish I did, but I just did not feel that way about about Mr. Oz. So it's not just that, oh, this undermines the origin. That's a big part of it for me. I cannot deny that. <laughs> but it's also in in the way that um, in the way that it plays out. But, you know, uh, at least it tidied up that Jor-El business, hopefully once and for all. It's still shocking to me. I, I guess in, in my mind, especially reading the Oz effect, I always assumed that when that genie was eventually put back in the bottle, it would have undone, like we, you know, it would have undone this period of time where he existed in the present as Mr. Oz. But no, I mean, that, you know, it all happens and he, you know, he goes back and he perishes with his younger self. And I, I guess if you think about it, not many characters even saw him or if they did see him, they wouldn't necessarily know who he was as far as like, you know, damage to, to uh, the space time continuum and whatnot. And I think there is context for Jor-El and Thomas Wayne both being active in comics at the same time. Now, Thomas Wayne, Batman, he's very much still around for the most part. Um, He has action figures. He's a known quantity. He has statues, whereas Mr. Oz, Jor-El, there'll be a point where do we remember what that was? I don't know. But uh, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, Superman and Batman uh, and where they stand with the public. I'm if I had to put money on it, I think however long it takes, eventually this will get retconned and we'll find out that wasn't the real Jor-El who showed up in the present. That's it. It's entirely possible. And uh, Supergirl's side mission was to get confirmation 
is any of this correct or is this just the ravings of some lunatic we've never even seen before? So she was able to confirm everything that's being said is so. All of it is correct. And it was good to see Superman and Supergirl working together. You know, you and I both know uh, the Matrix Supergirl or <laughs> Linda Linda Danvers, Earth Angel Supergirl, which was fine, but I kind of liked... Uh... So are you of the opinion that there should be less Kryptonians, like maybe under five Kryptonians anywhere, or it's okay if there's some Kryptonians around? It's so funny because... Uh, I- I literally just recorded an episode that people will have heard by now, but this just came up. And so I don't want to rehash what the, the whole spiel I gave in the, in the other episode, but I, I definitely, I don't need for Kal-El to be the sole survivor. I think there is room for others as long as it doesn't undermine that original central tragedy and that the other Kryptonians who were there are there in a way that, that adds, that opens up a new wrinkle or a new dynamic. So I'm actually all for, Kara Zor-El because it, she has a whole different perspective, right? She had a life on Krypton. She has those memories of Krypton. Her whole reason for being to protect her little baby cousin is completely undermined when she shows up and he's grown. So there's a lot to explore there. Um, while at the same time, you know, it, it does give Clark a connection, a direct tangible connection to his homeworld that he didn't have before. But it's not like his entire family is there either. So there's still, again, I think that central tragedy, that initial tragedy is still preserved. And then similarly with the Kryptonian criminal Zod, you know, Zod mainly, you know, that's a whole other, the, the Phantom Zone aspect I'm, I'm totally okay with. And I, there's something, you know, very poetic and bittersweet about this idea that like there are all these other Kryptonians out there, but they're the worst of the worst. And anytime they escape or he gives them a chance at, at redemption, uh, you know, he ultimately has to banish them. So I, I'm on board with that. Uh, what about you? Where do you land? It almost, it, just hearing you say that, it almost doesn't reconcile that why does Krypton have criminals to begin with? In the Silver Age, they had legit criminals. Now, I think in the John Byrne stuff, maybe it was people that had a different line of thinking that was not part of you know the Kryptonian law, basically. If you diverge from that, you probably got to go. But uh, yeah, just... Uh, in the Phantom Zone, we saw Jack Zorro. I don't know if you, yeah. you picked up on that. And that's, I think he's a Silver Age character, but I mainly know him from the uh, Superman animated series. Yes. You know, it's where I know him from. Because I only knew Zod, Ursa, and Nun. Is that right? Mm-hmm. I knew them, but, uh, you know, there were other characters uh, around. And uh, it was interesting to see him, and he was convinced by uh, Rogel Zar, who was put in the Phantom Zone, because where else are you going to put the guy? He was able to rally troops, including some Kryptonians, to to uh, to his cause. He was able to do that. I think I vary. I think that you don't want. I, I don't like the idea of there being massive cities or, or planets full of Kryptonians. Uh, but at the same time, I think it is okay for certainly Supergirl, a proper Supergirl, at first. When they did that transition, I was very, I knew Matrix. I knew that artificial Supergirl character. That's what I knew. And I didn't want his cousin from Krypton. I didn't want it. Um, but that moment during the, uh, the big epic battle where Superman realized, I am here. Jor-El is over there. My son, John, is right there. 
Kara Zor-El is over there. The House of El is here. We're going to figure this out. Oh, Crypt- and crypto. <laughs> crypto. And, oh, there's General Zod. He's here, too. So we're collectively going to figure out the situation and get it solved. So I think that that's not a that's not something that, that I get hung up on, how many, if there's a lot of Kryptonians or not. But I also didn't like seeing Kandor, you know, offhandedly, off-panel, destroyed. It's funny that you mentioned about, you know, should they've even had that many criminals if there's such this advanced society? Well, so having just rewatched the Donner cut of Superman 2, Jor-El explains to Lex Luthor in the fortress that virtually all of the criminal element on Krypton, virtually everyone was able to be rehabilitated, save these three. So it definitely plays with that idea that like, yeah, this is generally not a, not an issue for Krypton but that uh, Zod and Nan and Ursa were these exceptions. Now, certainly in other depictions in the animated series and the comics, you, you definitely get the sense that the Phantom Zone is, is like littered with, <laughs> with these rogue elements. Maybe that, although they didn't get into this, but maybe that's part of the reason why other planets in the galaxy don't like Krypton. They're, they're you know, their crime, they're, you know, their criminal justice system and how they're just throwing people into this limbo dimension. Maybe that's part of it. It seemed like... It seemed to me that Superman didn't put Nuclear Man in there. That seemed like he'd been there from perhaps Kryptonian days. Is what that looked like to me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I definitely, I did appreciate that nod. Um, you know, I, I, I too liked when when the Earth was pulled into the Phantom Zone. I, you know, again, I think the Superman arc, the Superman series, got off to a, a solid start with that initial arc. Um, you know, there there were a couple of places where. Like at the end of the Man of Steel miniseries when Superman is battling Rogelzar in space and really not quite sure how he's going to win. And we get the deus ex machina of Supergirl showing up with the Phantom Zone projector. Uh, you know, it gives Superman an easy out. I did appreciate the moment where he's like, oh, like, I wish I had thought of that. Uh, so, you know, there's that moment. And then similarly, when the Earth is in the in the Phantom Zone and they, they pull the Earth out, right? But But Superman is still in there in the midst of this battle and... Zod and Rogozar are going at it. And, you know, Superman is really faced with this decision of like, what do I let Zod, do I let them tear each other apart? You know, do I let, you know, Zod hopefully take care of uh, Rogozar? Do I intervene? What do I do? And before he can make that decision, he is pulled back by uh, the Adam who has figured out how to retract him from the Phantom Zone. Um, They thought they were helping and they were, but. I guess my point is there were a couple of moments where Superman was faced with with a really interesting dilemma and. I, it would have been interesting to see what he what he would have actually done had he not been given an out. But I, I think that these are things that we want. Those are things I want to see in a Superman comic. Now, do I need to see him wrestling with like what do I do? Versus, I want to see him at least considering I got to I got to figure something out because this could go one of two ways. At least having the awareness uh, to consider those things is something that we don't always see. In our characters that I think that this this run was littered with moments like that. What did you think of the the way in which the the Lois and Clark relationship was depicted here and maybe even more so in action comics, which, again, I did not read. Um, action comics was a lot of dealing with Metropolis has an organized crime element. How could they possibly operate when this is Superman's home base? How do they get things done? Because they have uh, uh, they have things that they do. There's a supervillain that because of how they work, they might possibly be able to 
they could maybe kill Superman. They're trying, and they think that they have the ability to do it. And it's actually someone that works at the planet. So there's that secret identity. Uh, it's not really a mystery. Well, I guess it was kind of a mystery character for a while, but it's someone that's interacting with Clark Kent at work and is battling Superman out in the city. Um, I appreciate that Lois knows how things work, but not in a Mary Jane knows how Spider-Man's world works. She seems like she is, she's part of the team. She's not just like, Oh, go do the things you go do. She is part of the team. She's part of the team. But as far as the family dynamic, she was weirded out by Jor-El. And I think that she maybe didn't quite know how much she should vocalize in, in that situation, you know, as, as a human amongst uh, you know, these two, it's a Kryptonian situation at that point, not just a, you know, father-in-law kind of thing. This is a Kryptonian situation. Um, I did like that. She wanted to go supervise uh, uh, John's trip with Jor-El, but there did come some moments such as uh, I think they were somewhere and people figured out, you know, th this is, King Superman's wife, like she's here to help us. She's going to fix all of our problems. And just some things were popping up where uh, it made sense for me that she might leave. Sometimes characters don't do the right thing so much as like the logical thing. I could see someone saying, you know what? I think I'm going to, I think things are okay. You guys are in good shape. I'm going to go now and I'll see you in a couple days when you come back. Reading, uh, reading just the solo Superman title, I really didn't run into many issues of not knowing what was going on in, in the other books. And they, you know, there were references here and there to Leviathan. And obviously I knew that was the main storyline in action. So, you know, I, I wasn't lost, but the, you know, the first arc deals with earth and the phantom zone. And then uh, right after that, John Kent reemerges, right. As the 17 year old. And he, he's like, where's mom? And, Clark takes him to this the play, the apartment where Lois is staying and we had not seen her come back in the pages of Superman. So there was that moment where I was like, what the hell is going on here? Uh, and and so I did skim through a little bit of of action comics and I know there was a whole bit where she came back and she didn't tell Clark initially and she was working on her book and and they were trying a less traditional lifestyle sort of thing where I, I don't know how clear this was in action. It seemed like maybe they weren't living together full time I know she was off writing a lot there seemed to be a little bit of that going on am I am I off on that I don't remember how accentuated it was but yeah she was trying to do you know she was trying to do some career stuff she, she was um but I don't remember how accentuated that was because you had your organized crime story and you had your leviathan story which you would think that that type of uh you know pervasive there's agents everywhere. This entity has just knocked out all DC Comics' uh, spy networks, so they're the only game in town as far as information and access to equipment. You wouldn't think of Superman when you think of that type of story, which I think that might have been the good part, to put Superman in the middle of that situation where he can't just hit or lift something to solve it because it's this, it's this thing you can't even, like, you can't put hands on it. Because it's everywhere. It's ahead of you. It just left before you got there. Um, I thought that was kind of interesting, in my opinion. 
I, I, I'll admit, like I said, I didn't read action. I've not read Bendis's Justice League, nor have I read his Legion of Superheroes. I, I, it's not that I hated this reading assignment. There was, there were definitely things I enjoyed, as I've said. At the same time, when we talk about the Bendis era on the super titles, I think I'm good. I think I got, I think I got what I need. I don't know that I would necessarily invest the time or other episodes on again, on the action or Justice League or Legion of Superheroes. But I am glad that I at least read this. You know, this was one of the few remaining gaps in my modern Superman reading history. Uh, at this point, there's very little left when we're talking about really big gaps. It's essentially the uh, new Krypton saga right before the new 52 and then the new 52 era of Superman. And I'm going to be covering both of those later on the podcast this year. So, you know, from basically crisis forward, not that I've read every single issue, but just about. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to have covered this. <laughs> one other uh, one other thing that I guess I was wondering about, and I think that some fans had had vocalized this as well about with Bendis coming on board, whether all of the characters would begin talking in Bendis speak. And I know you know what I mean. <laughs> there, there were some moments. Well. There weren't as many moments of characters talking over one another and speaking at the same time. I feel like there wasn't as much of that, but what you did get is you got the Superman Clark Kent inner monologue. I think that's what you got as far as a Bendis tactic. I agree. And like I said, I, I really, I like that. That was, I was totally on board with that. Um, there was one of the moments with the well, flashback to the intergalactic council. One of the, one of the floating heads said that he he referenced his like nephew's bar mitzvah. There were things like that. There were some alien, some exchanges between aliens that just did not ring true at all. And I, you know, we can suspend our disbelief and say, oh, well, they have the same customs we do. But it was just a lot of the just the rhythm and the phrasings were so colloquial and just so earth earthly that they felt like the, in moments like that really took me out of it where it's like I, I i know we're dealing with a comic and aliens but it's like i just this does not this does not sound right to me but as far as superman himself and and again the rest of the core characters it's not like they weren't all sounding like ultimate peter parker or whatever so i i appreciated that there was one moment where in the past of krypton where Jor-El was pleading his case to the, the circle who he had access to, like, please, I cannot convince anyone about the that something's going on with the planet. Please speak up on my behalf. Where they're basically saying, is he is he talking about this again? And one of the one of the members, I think maybe the Tamaranian leader said, can we ha can I hang up now? It's like that's not a you know. I thought it was funny, but you know, as time passes, they're holograms. They can't hang up a hologram. You know, can I disconnect now? I probably would have. Uh, utilize that terminology but uh yeah i mean because i think there's see i think there's a line i think showing that these alien beings have a lot of the same thoughts or tensions or frustrations as we do i think that's fine i think it was just the way in which it was articulated uh you know in the end maybe don't send this episode to bendis <laughs> well trust me 
he is accustomed to uh you know he's accustomed to to various types of shall we say feedback from the public uh you know and look i've only had a, a little taste of this but you know with the with the my comic shop country documentary out there you know people have talked about it and written about it and you know a lot of it was very lovely but there were people who expressed things that they didn't like so you know i i can appreciate that and you know uh, what do i want to say you know I've not had the interactions with him, with Bendis that you have, but uh, we did exchange a few Instagram messages around the time that the documentary came out. And he, he seems like a really nice guy. And that's the sense that I've gotten from interviews. And one thing that I want to say on a very positive note, I definitely got the sense that this was someone who came on to writing Superman with affection. And I know he did a lot of research. I remember seeing the photos he posted with like all the research material and the, and the old comics that DC gave him to look at. He was and, at the house in Cleveland, you know, the Superman Museum. He was he was there. He uh, I think that he was immersed in the stuff. And I think that some of it bled through in uh, in what we read. Yeah. And there were nice touches. You know, there were a few touches in in this work that they read like someone who had thought a lot about Superman and said, oh, like that would be cool. Like right at the opening of Man of Steel, where uh, it's Firefly and uh, oh, who's the other fire based uh, uh, if you hadn't asked me, I, I, I all right. Anyway, we have these, the bad guys are, are having their conversation. And one of them is like, shh, like you don't like, don't yell. Like he listens for certain things. He listens for threats. Um, so just this idea that the criminal element in Metropolis would know things to sort of avoid because it might attract the attention of, of the super hearing I thought was really cool. And then to bring, to tie this entire thing together full circle in that first issue you know superman is listening to the city and he hears his beautiful music and in the final issue of the story he tracks down the young lady who's who's playing the music uh and has a really nice moment and thanks her for sort of being a little bit of that homing beacon for him when he's far from home so you know did you find did you find uh who it was um i'm looking uh firefly and killer moth killer moth that was the other one <laughs> damn it thank you so you know so stuff like that was good and, and at the end of the day if if I had to choose between stories with 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 plots that I enjoyed more versus um, you know a stories that I, I feel captured the core and the and the character of Superman, I go for the latter, and that's what I feel like Bendis did, and so I, I really do I, I really like that aspect of it. Um, there were just a lot of storytelling choices that I didn't like either in and of themselves, just the idea of them, even if they were executed well, like truth. Or things like Rogel's are that I just, I don't like the, the idea of it, but I also don't think that it it connected the way it was meant to. So that's where I land on all of this. So here's here's the test. Here's the question. After every graphic novel book club that we do, I'll pose this question to the room. I will say, would you recommend this story to someone? Now, maybe not a, it could be an experienced Superman reader, or it could just be someone that's like, you know, I saw some movies. Is there something good I can read for Superman? Would this be in the mix somewhere as far as available and in print material. I mean, I, I, I'm sad to say, but no. Interesting. Interesting. Now at the same time, would I, you know, I don't work at a comic shop anymore, but if I did, or if I were just visiting a shop and I saw someone, you know, kind of like grabbing it off the shelf and, and looking through it and deciding whether or not to get it. Would I say, put that back? <laughs> no, I would like, that's the thing. I wouldn't, I wouldn't talk someone out of it for whatever that's worth, you know? And, and especially if someone said like, I really like, I love Bendis. It's like, yeah, you should check out, see what he did on Superman. But I don't know if, if it's that, 
that that you know hypothetical person who's like, oh, I'm thinking about getting into Superman. This would be pretty low down on the list of of stories that I'd be like, you really you got to read this. So what would be high on the list? Like, uh, I feel like you and I would agree that Kingdom Come is somewhere on that list of things. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's like a radical. I don't think anyone's gonna be like, oh my god, that what a what a what a, what a crazy suggestion. For all, I mean, and look, just going back to the Lord retail of it all, it's like, you know, you've got a sense of what the person likes and what their sensibilities are and how they've experienced the character in, in TV and film that might inform what I recommend, right? So all of that, we would take that into account. But For All Seasons is definitely a favorite of mine. Birthright is is right up there at the top. Kingdom Come. Um, you know, All-Star Superman, I, I'm still reconciling exactly how I feel about that, but that's definitely a classic and that's definitely one that you could gift to someone. Um, you know, especially if you think they might gravitate towards more of the silver age take on the character, but that's, that's definitely one. Um, if, you know, if DC had that early triangle material in print, um, that would be something it is available. Most of it on the app, um, which was how I read it when I, when I did that, uh, those, those episodes last year. So, you know, a lot of that I would recommend, I think it held up really well for me. So I think part of the problem with the triangle stuff and part of a, a strength of this, in my opinion, is that you've got a beginning and you got a conclusion with this stuff. Whereas the triangle, there weren't, you could do from here to there, but there wasn't really like a, a storyline with a true conclusion in any of that stuff. Like there were story arcs like, you know, millennium giants, but there just weren't many. Uh, it was very open-ended. Whereas with this, you're reading what? One, two, three, four, five. You're reading five books and you can, you can be done with it or you can read other Superman stuff. Um, I think for me, when this was coming out and, you know, just, things going on in the world, things going on in my world, there were, I wanted to read something about someone with good intentions, someone that had the power to do good, the power to think about others at their own expense consistently and constantly. Someone trying to think of solutions that are not strictly violent or aggressive. I think that that through line that's all throughout this content, I think that was something that I was looking for. And I think that's something that I would hope that people from time to time would be looking for, you know, uh, did you see the Batman movie? Did you see that? I have not seen the Batman movie yet. By the time, um, by the time people hear this, I will have. Um, what I'm going to say is no spoiler at all. It is not a spoiler. And you know me, I don't yes. like spoiling. It's not when I, I find myself saying I hate crime too, which is not the same as, you know, maybe I can, after reading the Superman stuff, maybe I can find some way to help somebody. Maybe I can, you know, be a little bit better of a person. And I think that's kind of what, what I got out of the Superman content. And I think that's what, that's an inherent part of Superman. Maybe not from action comics. Number one, where he, he is, you know, really letting people have it. They're doing the wrong thing. But at some point that does become part of the character. I don't know where that happens. It's not the silver age where he's trying to get out of doing stuff, which is primarily what that, those stories seem to be Superman trying to get out of doing stuff. 
and making Lois or Jimmy appear to be completely insane when they figured something out. So I, I don't know. But at some point, putting a priority on doing the right thing and trying to be the best version of yourself that you can be, that became part of Superman's content. And I'm not saying other characters don't have that on the shelf, but Superman has that, and I, I think that's important. And I wanted to get that at that time, at that period of time, and I got it. That's lovely, and I'm glad that it had that effect for you. And I would never want to take away from that. So that's awesome, and I and I hope other people did too. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I is there anything else that you had that you wanted to say? Because I feel like we've sort of covered it. Yeah, I think that it really felt to me like uh, you know between Superman, Man of Steel, and Action Comics, Bendis wrote a lot of Superman. He did, but I just felt like this would be a, another multi year run that would cover a lot of ground, a lot of concepts and a lot of stuff. So it, it felt shorter than I would have thought it would have been. His jump from Marvel to DC to Superman in particular felt a lot like, and from a marketing perspective, DC really leaned into the similarities to Burns similar move in the eighties yes. with the whole Bendis is coming sort of thing. And it it's, they both started off with a man of steel miniseries and they both wrote Superman and action comics burn would also go on to, to co-write um, adventures of Superman for a, a relatively short period of time, but both did action and Superman and both runs ended kind of around the same point, like in the 20 after 20 or so issues. In my mind, it seems like Byrne was there like for years and years in my mind. That's the thing he wasn't. I mean, I guess it felt like that because it was multiple titles. So it, you know, he did rack up the number of issues and Byrne also did those World of Krypton, World of Smallville, World of Metropolis miniseries. So that, you know, added to it as well. But, you know, that's another instance where at least again, in terms of the output, it it echoed Byrne, uh, you know, and in both instances, I think. Everyone probably, you know, <laughs> assume this would be uh, a longer run. I mean, do I'm not asking you if, if you have any insider information, but I'm mean, like, do you have any sense of what, why the run ended up being seeming so truncated? N- nothing. I, yeah. I have no idea. But I do know that a lot of the subjects did reappear in Justice League, like we talked about. There were a few things that uh, maybe were completed in the pages of Justice League, or or. Uh, yeah, I'll say the subject seemed to be completed. They ran their course not here, but in Justice League. They reached their natural conclusion, right. some of the subjects. Gotcha. Well, like I said, I I am content with the Bendis era of Superman, with what I've consumed of it, and I think I'm good there. You're a tough room. You're, you're a tough room, though. <laughs> Am I though? I, you know, I, I'm curious to hear reaction to this, uh, you know, and, and see where people land. I, um, yeah, I mean, look, I stand by what I said and I genuinely did feel like I went in with an open, like I really didn't go in wanting to, to bag on this or anything like that, but I, you know, and especially when we're talking about Krypton and the origin, I, I, I do feel strongly. <laughs> uh, I think that you have a very clear and specific version of what is Superman. You know, we, we all do in our own way, but you definitely do. <laughs> you definitely do have that. 
It's true. And I'm sure this is informed too by the fact that I am, you know, currently in the midst with this podcast of reading and watching and rereading and rewatching a lot, a lot, a lot. And, you know, so it's kind of all swirling around and you're seeing what, what works and what doesn't. And, uh, you know, when something really hits, it's really meaningful and I get a lot out of it and, and other things, unfortunately, sometimes fall kind of flat. And that was the category for this. But, uh, again, and not to, you know, not to belabor the point, but it's, you know, it's like, yes, I feel a certain way about the origin. I feel a certain way about the secret identity, but I, I am open to a story that I think is, is, you know, really compelling. Um, so it's not, I don't want to, I don't want to present myself as being like, no, I'm so like, it has to be this one way. It's it, that's really not it. But in any event, I thank you very much for you're a busy guy. And I appreciate you, uh, rereading these books and, and spending this time talking with me. I know people heard the ad for Acme comics, but is there anything else you want to say about Acme, uh, while, while we have you here? Oh, uh, well, um, We've been around for a long time. We've been around since 1983. Um, and I've been caretaker of this place and it's carried myself as such for 25 years, basically. And uh, now I'm serving in a, in a whole new capacity that uh, I appreciate everyone who has helped to get me here, including many people that have never set foot in the store before that have... Uh, done mail orders with us they bought stuff off of our ebay store search acme comics and uh you know every little bit contributed and continues to contribute to the big picture of what we're doing here and what we try to do is represent the best of this material and, and uh serve as guides and navigators in what can be uh very noisy and colorful and sometimes overwhelming uh, world of entertainment and, uh, yeah, I'm just lucky to, uh, lucky to do this, uh, lucky to have been part of your documentary. Uh, I appreciate you making me part of this, you know, but when people think it's me, they probably don't think of Superman and, but it's, it's a character that I know pretty well. There's plenty of characters I don't know very well at all, but Superman, I, I know, I know a little bit know a little bit about Superman. So this has been a good conversation that I normally don't get to normally don't get to talk about this type of thing. Not, not Superman. On the note of Acme, I hope everyone checks out acmecomics.com and, uh, and, and of course, you know, follow all the other uh, calls to action that we give you in the, in the commercial that you already heard. And yeah, I really enjoyed this conversation. It was a lot of fun. I mean, you know, I guess the final reason, you know, that I wanted to have you for this is I felt like, out of everyone I know, you would probably make the best case for the Bendis era of Superman. I don't, within my circles, and I know a lot of Superman fans, and I'm not, I'm not speaking for all of them. I'm not saying, oh, they all hate this run, but I don't know. No one else immediately came to mind. And there were even a couple, you know, of other folks like this has come up in conversation. I'm like, yeah, I think I would do an episode. And they're like, eh. So it's like, I, I feel like you were the one who, who would make the best case for it. Now, just to sort of close the loop here and this whole idea of you know you, you you being cryptic and all that like I, when I talk to my wife later again she's out of town at the moment when I talk to her I'm sure she's going to say like oh did Jermaine like the comics what do I I think I would say to her yes he did he enjoyed <laughs> them I mean I is that fair to say I really did especially right. <laughs> having having been away from Superman for a while this reminded me that I do like 
Superman. I like the Phantom Zone. I like you know, the, the things that come along with with a uh, with Superman. That uh, I'd stepped away from it all for a good period of time. I was still in the same room with it, but just as a as a fan, I kind of stepped away from it for a while. And this reminded me of I like Superman too. That was a cool movie, Superman animated series. I really like that a lot. Um, it just helped me to kind of to through through this material helped me to realize that I do like Superman. Well, then it served its purpose. So thank you, Jermaine, very much. Thank you to the audience. As always, make sure you check out acmecomics.com. Make sure you come back here in one week. Next week, we are moving into current Superman comics for an episode, and we are going to talk about the current War World saga in action comics written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. I have not yet read any of this. I've heard great things. I'm excited to dive into it. I'm excited to sort of dip my toe back into the water of, of current ongoing monthly Superman comics. So I'm really excited for that. I hope you'll come back. And until then, remember, it's about what you do. It's about action. The spinoff podcast, Digging for Justice, a DC fan journey, is available now exclusively at patreon.com slash Anthony Desiato, starting at the $1 level. New episodes release monthly, and many more rewards are available too, including a robust back catalog of bonus podcasts. Thank you to all patrons for enabling me to produce this show.